Just a quick word of warning before we get going that the following podcast will almost certainly contain spoilers and may also contain strong language and conversations of an adult nature. Welcome to Strong Language and Violent Scenes, the podcast, given a second chance to films that might not deserve them. As ever, I'm Mitch Bain, I'm a lapsed horror writer and an occasional doer of musical things. And I'm Andy Stewart, sticky filmmaker and uh, a little bit, tiny bit, burnt out on CGI. And joining us tonight, he is the director of the Shutter exclusive film Found Footage 3D, also the short film Stop, and is also the co-host of the podcast Science vs. Fiction, it is Mr. Stephen DeGennaro. Stephen, hello, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you guys for having me, I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for doing this and thank you for bringing a film that I haven't seen probably since I saw it Uh, actually I didn't I don't think I saw it in the cinema I think the first time I saw it was in DVD Um, yeah Um, I I saw it in um, 2011 I saw it in the the cinema so you've chosen Sucker Punch um, uh, for this week's show Um, I saw it theatrically when it came out obviously and I remember not thinking much of it so I was interested to watch it again when you chose it and also that you specifically requested that we watch the director's cut, which we tracked down and watched. So first off, why this film and why specifically the director's cut? Well, so I saw it in the in the theater as well when it first came out, and I was not all that impressed by it either. Like I remember watching it, and I remember feeling bored for a good portion of the runtime. <laughs> uh, ironically, and I still I still think this is true. It was during the action sequences that I felt least engaged with the movie, but for some reason or another. I mean, probably because I, I'm a Zack Snyder fan, although I think his stuff is very hit and miss. Some of his stuff I absolutely love. Some of his stuff I don't particularly connect with. And right. so, but, but the stuff that I like, I like well enough that he's one of those filmmakers where I will go and see whatever he makes and I will, you know, usually make a second attempt at it to make sure that I didn't miss something that made the experience better than I was necessarily <laughs> okay. giving it on a, on a first try. So... I rewatched it at some point. I bought it on Blu-ray, I think, because maybe that was what happened. Maybe I just came across it in the store on Blu-ray, and it was the extended version. I said, "Huh, let me look at this and see if the extended version's any better." And uh, I liked it a whole lot more. Right. Um, so that yeah. So I chose it because it's one of those movies that when people don't like it, most of them hate it. And I think it's a very <laughs> misunderstood movie. Uh, uh, you know, so I, I, I'm I'm excited to get into talking about sort of why I think the movie is misunderstood as much as disliked. I've got to say, I am very interested in that as well. Yeah, me too. And I, I've got to say, and I will say right now, I'm not a massive Zack Snyder fan. Although I have seen, I think, everything he's done. And um, I think, weirdly, I will continue to seek out the things that he does as and when he does them. But I, th- I feel like the thing for me that I still like the most that he's done is the Dawn of the Dead remake. Yeah, I mean, that's a great movie. See, he's one of those directors that, to me, like... I, I think he's a lot better, but I put Rob Zombie in this category a little bit because Rob Zombie has made one movie that I thought was good enough that I continue to see everything he puts out, even though <laughs> I hate most of it. Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's reasonable. <laughs> Whereas, you know, Zack Snyder has some stuff that I don't like. Man of Steel, just meh. <laughs> I, I don't even dislike it. It's just so meh to yeah. me. Uh, you know, whereas 300, I think, is a fantastic movie, and I really like his Watchmen 
adaptation as well. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into the kind of meat of this thing, Stephen, I don't know if you've listened to the show before or not, but oh, we oh cool. Oh, okay. Good. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Um, uh, then you will know what's coming next. So there will be people, I would imagine. Uh, out there that will be listening to the show without having seen Sucker Punch in either form. So um, Andy is, I believe, in the process of putting 30 seconds on the clock. It's done. It's done. done. So um, if I count you in, will you be willing to give us your best shot at the 30-second synopsis of Sucker Punch? I came prepared, so hopefully we'll <laughs> get there. <laughs> okay. 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 Three, two, one, go. So after her mother dies, a teenage girl with the incredibly subtle name of baby doll gets put into a mental institution by her evil stepfather so that he can have her lobotomized so that he can steal her inheritance. And while baby doll is in the institution, she daydreams that she's a prostitute in an old timey brothel and enlists some of the other girls to try to escape uh, by means of baby doll dancing in what honestly is one of the most unsexy ways possible (laughs) to mesmerize the men around her, which somehow transports her into a further series of fantasies Wherein she and her friends become kick-ass warrior women on a series of quests in different genres of movie slash comic book. <laughs> it was an excellent 40 seconds synopsis. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> it's a hard movie to synopsis. I, I very much you, you got to do three different stories. Yeah, you get uh, 10 seconds each. As we, were, as, as we were counting you in, I was just thinking, I was like, has there has anyone picked a harder film to sum up in 30 seconds than Sucker Punch? <laughs> that, was, that was my third draft. <laughs> <laughs> Um, right. Okay. I think we. I think we should get straight into this because yeah. there is a lot. There's a lot to unpack yeah, here. Yeah. It's um. Yeah. Now. Um, it's a head scratcher. It is. Now I think that um, I come and go on this film a decent amount. There are some parts of it that I think really work. Some parts that I really struggle with. I think that the prologue works really nicely. The first five minutes of this movie is a masterclass in how to deliver exposition purely visually. There's not a single word of dialogue for the first like five minutes. The entire thing is just told through images, and you know exactly what's going on, you know exactly who the characters are, what the mm-hmm. relationships are to one another, what got them to this point. And that, to me, is Zack Snyder at his best, like when he is sort of visual storytelling and he's going, okay, I'm going to use visuals to get me from point A to point B, as opposed to somebody like Christopher Nolan, who's like, I'm going to have two people explain things to each other for 15 minutes <laughs> in order to catch the audience up on what's going on. And I just, the first five minutes of this, I think, are among the best examples of visual exposition I've ever seen in a film. I know, I want to say this as well. I actually think that for the most part, certainly in the kind of mental hospital stuff and in the, I guess, the brothel-y stuff, not so much the stuff when it all gets a bit more CG heavy, but I think this film looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it's, I mean, yeah, it's got a very Zack Snyder-y kind of look. It's it's funny because you, you talked about the Dawn of the Dead remake, which I think is probably the only one of his movies that doesn't really feel like a Zack Snyder movie. <laughs> yeah. On that, with that that visual palette, that really CGI heavy sort of thing that you associate with stuff like Watchmen or this or... Uh, the Justice League movies. Mm. While this is unfolding, this I know I, know, I remembered, or I kind of it kind of refresh my memory. Obviously, watching it back, you have um something that is now done all the time in film trailers and stuff. But I remember that this film used it quite a bit before it was annoying, which was the kind of slowed down, doomy versions of uh, kind of eighties and nineties pop and indie standards. Yeah, yeah, all female sung as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah. from what I understand, uh, they were all recorded for the movie specifically. Oh, that that checks out. I definitely haven't heard any of them anywhere else. Yeah, I some of think. it's Emily Browning. Yeah, they and they were they were they were uh, you know arranged or whatever by the composers of the film of the you know the score of the movie. 
Oh, cool. I th- I think that I I think that um, score and soundtrack wise, I think that it's one of the stronger things going on here. Personally, I can't help but think here that you're doing the shit sandwich, Mitch. No, I just, I'm just I'm, I'm leading <laughs> with the fact that. <laughs> Let's just wait and see, okay? Yeah. So yeah, Stephen, you covered um, quite a lot of what goes on in these five minutes or the, this kind of expositional part. Yeah. In your so I I left off, I guess, the part where she sh- accidentally shoots her sister. So yeah, her her mother dies. She gets her stepfather finds out that the mother left all of her money to the two daughters. Uh, he attacks the younger daughter and in an attempt to sort of save her, she tries to shoot him and ends up hitting her instead uh, and then gets hauled away to the mental hospital as a result of it. That's mm-hmm. quite a day. Yeah. <laughs> Again, that's all in five minutes with no dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that um, that really, it really does do a great job of relaying this kind of thing. But ultimately, um, she is packed off to uh, Lennox's house for the mentally insane. Yes, Mitch. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you wouldn't get away with it calling it that nowadays. No, another week and another film mm. uh, which features some uh, pretty ropey behavior from the people who are supposed to look after people in a mental hospital. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> it's an inescapable theme of probably about a third of the 79 films that we've done on the show. Um, so, yeah, the stepfather, or her stepfather, commits her, uh, listed here as a danger to herself and others kind of thing. We meet Oscar Isaac here, and this is kind of well before Oscar Isaac became the kind of standard that he is now. The kind this of, is, or, I think, the first thing I remember seeing him in. This is before same. Lewin Davis. This is before, yeah. yeah, I think, I'm pretty sure this is the first thing I ever saw him in. It didn't, I didn't clock that it was him until after I'd seen kind of Drive and stuff like that, and I was going back through his filmography, and I was like, oh, fuck, that was, he was that guy. He takes them to, so he's kind of in, I think the film spends about maybe about five percent of its runtime in actual reality right yeah and yeah. um and we're here right now um so we're in this extremely bleak and extremely kind of washed out looking mental hospital i think all this stuff looks great i think that at this point i must admit like i say i think that when this gets increasingly more fantastical i find it to be in terms of how i engage with it to be quite a steep drop but um i think at this point i'm i find this kind of thing very easy to get swept up in yeah no i mean I, and i he's he's terrifying in this movie in both both levels. One of the things that's fascinating about his character, so he, you know, he plays an orderly, and he makes a deal with the stepfather that he's going to sort of forge some signatures on some papers, and when this other doctor arrives at the end of the week, he's going to have her lobotomized, and uh, in exchange for a little bit of cash from the stepfather. And you know, but he's an orderly, like he's he's literally somebody with almost no actual power in that yeah. world, and yet he, and this I think becomes very thematically important later on uh, as we go deeper into the fantastical levels. The fact that he has no power bugs him, and he wants to have power over these women that are in this mental institution, and that to me is so again thematically, I think what the movie at its heart is trying to talk about is the way that men, you know, broadly the way that men treat women, but in particular the way that men, and particularly men who don't perceive themselves as having any sort of power will turn around and use what little power they have to subjugate the women in their lives and in their entertainment uh, in order to make themselves feel powerful. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And that was the show, ladies and gentlemen. Um, There we go. (laughs) Yeah. um, We'll dig into the kind of the way that that unfolds. Yeah, uh, and there are some things that I don't think have aged particularly well in terms of what Oscar Isaac does, but I generally think he's excellent in this. Yeah, All that I mean, stuff he's excellent aside. in everything. <laughs> yeah, that's that is true. Um, so, yeah, right before um, uh, Baby Doll is about to be lobotomized by the lobotomizer in this, <laughs> in, on this plane and on the next level, the high roller, uh, John Hamm. Sure. Um, yeah, the scene switches uh, very abruptly, and we exit reality for the next couple of hours, really. 
yeah. If, if you're watching the, the the extended version, certainly. Yeah, there are yeah, there are a few sort of flashes where we go back to the real world very briefly, but for the most part, we spend most of the movie in this second level. Um, where uh, Madame Gorsky is directing a kind of like a dance sequence or a some kind of scene or other. Worth mentioning. Madame Ma- Gorsky, played by the incomparable Carla Gugino, who has a kind of terrible Russian accent in this, <laughs> but is one of my favorite actresses like ever. I think she's brilliant. Yeah, and she, and she's she's good in here for because she's actually not really in it that much. No, I mean she sort of plays she plays the in. So now we go into this brothel level, and uh, you know in the brothel level, Oscar Isaac is the owner of the brothel, and she's sort of the the madam. I guess she's the the girl minder of the brothel, and they're all trapped there. It's not a brothel, obviously, where they're allowed to come and go. It's a place <laughs> where they are basically sex slaves. Yeah, and, well, not basically, they are sex yeah, slaves. That's exactly what they are. And uh, <laughs> She meets these four other girls, including two sisters, played by Jenna Malone and Abby Cornish. Yes, and uh, and these two other girls who honestly are barely distinguishable from one another <laughs> yeah. at any level of the movie. Well, one of them um, is uh, Vanessa Hudgens from High School Musical. Who took this role on to try and kind of get away from that uh, Disney thing. Um, yeah, and then and shortly afterward, didn't she do Spring Breakers as well? Yeah, yes, that was yes, her. Yes, she did. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So just 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 to very quickly shoot through the kind of uh, the cohorts and the kind of girl gang that assembles in this. Um, once you get to this level, you've got Abby Cornish uh, here playing Sweet Pea. Uh, Vanessa Hudgens here playing Blondie, who confusingly is not blonde. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Jenna Malone playing the character of Rocket, and Jamie Chung as Amber. Yeah, yeah, and uh, pretty much for the rest of the film, Jamie Chung's character just seems to be kind of shoehorned in as the Asian girl who knows how to work technology. Yeah, she's, I mean, honestly, like, I watched this yesterday and I can't remember, I remember some of the stuff that Vanessa Hudgens does. I don't remember anything, like, what, where her part is in even, in any of the levels. She's, you know, she's clearly the least uh, important (laughs) character of the, of these girls the two most important being abby cornish and jenna malone yeah yeah i think that i agree i think that what you have here is a situation where you have five characters and maybe room for three personalities (laughs) yeah 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 which you know when you think about it maybe they could have they don't all they're not all super important in terms of uh actually executing the plot so they he might have been better off just going with one less but i don't know yeah yeah i think so maybe (laughs) (laughs) maybe five was a bridge too far Sorry, I was going to say Baby Doll is, you know, she's obviously our protagonist. And in some sense, honestly, she's one of the less interesting characters in the film because this relationship between Rocket and Sweet Pea uh, and, and Abby Cornish as sort of like the, the den mother-ish, you know, of this little group of the person who's sort of looking out for them, who's just kind of like, put your head down, do your job, stay out of trouble, because if we get into trouble, severe consequences will come. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she only reluctantly joins this plan to try to escape from the brothel but that i feel like that relationship and her and rocket their characters are the most well drawn of the the girls yeah you kind of hit on something there that hadn't really occurred to me but yeah considering that she is theoretically kind of the protagonist emily brown not given a massive amount to do here well so there is a sense in which i mean you know by the end of the movie the movie kind of posits nah she wasn't the protagonist yeah Yeah. this was never her story this was always abby cornish's story and uh, we just kind of got into it through her. But the really important story was 
again, this story between these two sisters mm-hmm. and Abby Cornish's need to get free and of her eventual yeah. success in doing that. Yeah, so I, I suppose Emily Browning pretty much basically explains that directly into the camera towards the end, not to get too spoilery, but like, um, yeah, yeah, that's and like... they they foreshadow it with the opening narration that is delivered by Abby Cornish. Yeah, as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, fair. <laughs> I think that um, for you to get an idea of how the brothel works, I think that, or kind of like to get a feel for it, I think that the fact that the surroundings are still bleak in a different way from the mental hospital of reality, but still very bleak. Oh. I think that it's interesting that it's introduced in the form of a dance montage set to Love is a Drug. That is not in the theatrical cut. Yeah, that was used purely as the uh, end credits, uh, you know, an end, a number under under the end credits, the song and a little bit of the visuals. Uh, are there, and they're still there in the extended version under the end credits but he put it back into the movie. Honestly, it's one of those things that I don't think that makes the movie any better. It's not one of the additions that I particularly, you know, think helps. No, no, no. I think he was probably right to cut it. I still quite like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, what I would say is, it is weird that, like, this is supposed to be her kind of getting into this fantasy world in her head, but what she's done is going into a world that is every bit as bleak as the one she's left. Yeah, I think that's trying to say something about, I think what, you have to look at all three levels together and the course of the whole story to really unpack what I think the movie is trying to say about femininity and strength and subjugation. But I think, it, you're right, it is very interesting that, that this, I don't know, it's, uh, I don't know that the point is necessarily for her to escape as much as it is for her to process what's happening to her in the real world on the you know asylum level in a way that makes more sense to her. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a sense in which, right, like if you were somebody trapped in a brothel as a sex slave by this evil piece of shit with a pencil thin mustache, uh-huh. um, you know, you would expect life to be hard and miserable and shitty. But as you said, I think, Mitch, earlier, like, it's not what you expect to happen when you're in a place where people are supposed to be taking care of you. Yeah. And and yet that is what she has been subjected to, thanks to her stepfather and, and Oscar Isaac as the orderly. Yeah, that's uh, very difficult to refute, I gotta say. Um, Jenna Malone gets into a fight with the chef here and is kind of uh, saved from either a physical assault or a rape. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does look pretty salacious. Yeah, um, but, yeah. By uh, by Baby Doll, so this is kind of... I, I, so she's, this is kind of one of the things that she does that kind of ingratiates herself with the more skeptical members of the group, I think, when she first arrives. I do think that, because obviously with the plan that forms here, I think that, you know, because the whole idea is that she will create this diversion by doing this very hypnotic dance um, (laughs) that that distracts people to the point that all of these kind of elaborate stages of this plan can happen undetected. Which happens, you know, by accident. She doesn't plan to do this. She's not aware that she has this power when she starts doing it, right? In fact, she's, she's reluctant to dance the first time. So that, you know, they pull her you know, the the plot of in the brothel level is that she's a new girl that has just arrived, and in five days the high roller, also played by John Hamm, is going to come and take her virginity. And Oscar Isaac has sold her for a very large sum of money, mm-hmm. and so nobody is allowed to touch her until then. Meanwhile, she you know they want to start training her to dance in these shows and whatever else, and so they ask her to dance, and she's reluctant at first, and then when she finally starts doing it, we move into this third level of fantasy. Uh, and in this first sequence, she is at this sort of, I don't know, Shinto temple of some yeah. sort, mm-hmm. very anime-inspired environment, mm-hmm. uh, where she meets, can't remember what they call him. It's just oh, the wise man. Yeah, the wise man, yeah. The wise man, yeah. Scott Glenn. Scott Glenn. Yeah, Scott Glenn seems to just be playing this character all the time now. And, and everything <laughs> he's, he's very. In. It's a very, like, Charlie's Angels kind of thing. And I, think <laughs> it's, I don't think that's accidental. I think it's kind of... A bit of a commentary on that, again, on that whole idea. And to me, you know, once you get into these, it's a double-edged sword with these 
you know, the the third level of the fantasy sequences. Because like I said, you know, when I was first talking about the movie, I find them kind of unengaging in a lot of ways yeah. because mm-hmm. it's hard to understand what the stakes are. It's hard to know because we're, you know, these things are now metaphors for what is happening in the brothel level, yeah. which is in itself an abstraction of what's happening in the so-called real world. And you now have these fantasy sequences where they're these kick-ass women, but they're still dressed like sexual objects. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, and the idea of strength that that the movie tries to sort of graft onto them is this very sort of masculine ideal of strength of let's, you know, swords and guns and shoot 'em ups and kicking people's asses and and it's still a very male centric idea of what female strength is supposed to look like. And that to me I think is where sorry I'm, I'm No, <laughs> I'm no, no, you're, you're too, a little too prof- professorial with all this stuff, but No, I think it that you're absolutely right. Um, because I think a lot of people don't like the movie because they assume that that is misogynistic as opposed to a commentary on misogyny. And I think there can be a very fine line and I don't obviously have access to Zack Snyder's brain. But to me, I read the movie as you know, the choice to set these things in this fantasy world where you have anime, you have a science fiction, you have a uh, like a high fantasy battling against orcs and dragons. You have <laughs> yeah. World War One war movie with zombies and they're all action movies. And these are, again, these are all very male-dominated genres that where a lot of the fans of these kinds of genres oftentimes resent female intrusion. You look at, like, the reaction to, uh, you know, a female-led Star Wars trilogy. That sure. People mm-hmm. are, you know, that certain subset of the fanboy community is not happy about. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, to me, like, that's the sucker punch, right? That's the, it's, oh, you're going to get this awesome, like hot women in sexy outfits kicking ass sort of thing. But then you graph this other story onto it about the brothel and about the asylum, and suddenly now it's an indictment of that sort of nerd culture as much as it is a celebration of it, to me. It's interesting you say that as well, because actually when this film didn't perform as well as uh, Warner Brothers and Legendary had hoped it would, uh, Legendary's response to that was to say that they didn't think it did well because people wouldn't respond to female action heroes. Which, I mean, uh, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's like studio covering for itself. Come yeah. on, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, right? Yeah, no, that, I mean, nobody likes Sarah Connor or Ellen Ripley. Like, I, I mean, I think this movie is weird and complex and very difficult to follow in, at times. And, <laughs> and like I said, these, these action sequences are supposed to be thrilling turn out to be the least interesting part of the movie because it's so hard to get involved in to me to get involved in the stakes and to really sort of feel well, like okay well I'm, I'm i'm now worried that they're not going to succeed in yeah. slitting this dragon's throat uh-huh. these crystals <laughs> well, it's, and that's again, not really what they're that's a metaphor built on top of a metaphor in the first place so like i feel like it almost would have been better to just see them trying to get these objects in the asylum or in yeah. the uh, brothel in the brothel that's absolutely. exactly what I, I was saying to you while, while we were watching it there Mitch is that it, that stuff is far more compelling and speaking of stakes when they go into that kind of third level of these these different kind of scenarios that they keep slipping into um, the stakes are really low because they're never confronted with anything that they can't handle almost immediately up until the point where uh not to kind of jump too far ahead, but where Jenna Malone's character is killed in the train in the kitchen. and bomb. But yep. up until that point, everything goes without a hitch, and you kind of begin to just expect it to go like that, and it it does kind of undercut any stakes that they're trying to build. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that the thematic ambitions of the movie are in tension with the dramatic ones in in those moments because I think again, I think the part of the point is this idealized fantasy of these women that, you know, uh, the, the sort of classic Mary Sue trope of these women who can just 
kick butt constantly and are never vulnerable and uh, again are still dressed in skimpy clothes yeah. uh, even though they're out in trenches in World War One, <laughs> where nobody <laughs> would be wearing a, a mini skirt and and thigh high stockings or whatever. Yeah, that's um, <laughs> And so I think that I, I think that if you made them vulnerable in that level, in a sense, it would undercut what the movie's trying to say about female empowerment. But yeah, it definitely does make it very difficult to really care about what's going on in in those sequences, which is a shame because they look. Well, I mean, they are very heavily CGI. Yeah, things they have some beautiful stuff in them. I mean, yeah, they, I mean they do look good, but I think that like I think the reason why this film falters for me as a piece of entertainment is because I find basically all of those sequences. I think once you get past the fact that they're visually quite striking, there's just I think yeah, there's it's very difficult to engage with on a level beyond the superficial, and I think that that's that's a real sticking point for me. Um, and I agree, and I think that like, and I'm actually surprised that we landed on this point so early. But I think that it is it benefits, or it would have benefited much more from it just being them trying to procure the items that they need, that they've been told that they need to get out, just in the brothel. Yeah, it's hard to imagine that it would have gotten made if that had been the case. <laughs> because <laughs> then the could not have marketed it, marketed it as this. Oh, hey, look at come look at these scantily clad women kicking people's asses in these big CGI set pieces on that subject though um just just to kind of pull it into the story in kind of baby doll's first entrance into that plane of fantasy uh, she does find out or it kind of scott glenn's character the wise man alludes to her that she needs to escape um um, a map fire a knife a key and a mystery fifth item (laughs) yeah i think that and this is kind of uh an offshoot of what you were saying i think that it's incredibly frustrating that um the device for how we kind of enter these things is her dancing and this is this kind of massively kind of enticing kind of hypnotic thing and you never see any of it i think that that it feels like an idea that isn't followed up on (laughs) oh see i feel like i feel the exact opposite okay that like there's nothing that they could have shown It feels to me like, you know, sometimes when you're reading a novel and like the novel is about like a person who's like, you know, a Nobel Prize winning poet. Right. And then like the author inserts, you know, you read one of their poems at some point and you're like, okay, the person who wrote this book was not a Nobel Prize winning poet. Uh, You know, it's the same sort of thing for me where it's like if whatever she did, whatever, you know, whatever uh, uh, the actress did right on the day was never going to be was never going to live up to whatever you know to, to this idea that oh she could literally mesmerize people <laughs> dancing yeah, yeah. I think it actually was even a mistake to show the little bit of it that they do yeah, what they do show <laughs> is like well, how does that even get to a place where like these people are completely mesmerized so she just kind of sways around a little bit and it's, yeah, it's quite it's, un- it's pretty uncomfortable uh, not only is she swaying she's kind of standing on a manky kitchen laptop um, yeah I'm just uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna go ahead I'm just going to call withdrawn on that point. That's yeah, that's an extremely <laughs> compelling argument. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, the first kind of like video game sequence is kind of how I look at it. Oh, hey, hey now. Zack Snyder has said <laughs> that this film is in no way meant to feel like a video game No, at no, all. no, no. That's not what he said. He said that it, he didn't want it to just be oh, right. a video game. Ah, okay. I think ah, absolutely right. those sequences are commenting on, again, it's that same sort of fan base of people that are into video <laughs> games or into anime or into comic books or into, you know, action movies. Um, I think that they're all of a piece uh, in the movie. And I think that absolutely, you know, in some sense, those sequences are meant to. Well, I mean, Scott Glenn, he, games. his kind of job is to turn up and, I guess, dispense the mission and the objectives. And so, I mean. Yeah. 
and there's there's bosses you know mini bosses and bosses at every level and I mean they're definitely very much structured both like video games and also like I mean the movie is in some sense structured a little bit like a comic book series as well where you have individual issues that tell a story but then you have this overarching narrative across multiple issues that tells a whole arc or yeah. whatever. And I don't think, again, I don't think any of that is accidental. I think that's all there because that's the milieu of uh, art and people that he's commenting okay. on. Yeah, yeah. Am I right in thinking that this is his only film to date that isn't based on an existing IP? Uh, I believe it certainly was his first. I don't think he's done any since any then. Sense. I mean, he's done the the uh the dc universe stuff i think yeah. exclusively since then so i mean the guys clearly got some pretty interesting ideas yeah i mean the bo- the movie is obviously wrestling with big questions about fandom and femininity and strength and and all this stuff i don't know that it necessarily lands all of its punches for me even i can see how a lot of people misinterpreted some of those things as being the opposite of what cuz i mean if you read all the negative reviews they're all like oh it's supposedly about female empowerment but female empowerment to him just means dressing up in sexy offices and and you know drop kicking zombies and it's like if you if you again i don't know what's in Zack Snyder's head <laughs> i look at it as a commentary on that genre as, as more so than a straight you know example of it and I think that's to me is where the people that really like this movie and the people that really hate this movie for those same, you know, for the for the idea of the feminism that the movie presents, I think that that's where the divide happens. Mm-hmm. Is okay. how yeah how seriously to take these video game sequences as female empowerment essentially. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that also um, we've we've kind of talked about the things about those sequences that work and don't work. So I think that like dwelling on the particulars of each one too much probably won't. There's probably not too much mileage in that. No, 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 no. Um, no I mean, they're yeah, they're almost inconsequential. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, because I mean, basically, like yeah, the first one, you know, she gets she she finds out what she needs to know about making an escape, and then she uh, fends off some uh, giant samurai, one of which has a Gatling gun. Um, <laughs> sure. And yeah, the, uh, at that point, we're kind of back to reality, and she kind of goes back to the other four and pictures this escape plan. And um, kind of sweet pea Abby Cornish's character seems to be kind of especially down on the idea. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. she, I, I think she. More than most of them, um, I think, really sees Oscar Isaac's character Blue for how dangerous he really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and she really doesn't want to anger him. She doesn't really want to poke that bear too much. Um, and in fact, there comes a point later on where the first opportunity for her again to say, we need to stop this, she does. Yeah, yeah, but then she, yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, and, and I think that mirrors a lot of abusive relationships, obviously, yeah. right, in a sense, right, where it's like, okay, well, you can try to escape or you can hunker down, make yourself as small a target as possible and hope to just get by. Mm-hmm. And you can't really fault people for either of those reactions, in a sense, right? Because surviving is important. Yep. And, you know, it's very easy to say, oh, I would rather be free than a slave, which is kind of what the, you know, where the movie eventually sort of gets to. Mm-hmm. But she has, a, she makes a very good point. And she's, she turns out to be right, uh, you know, getting ahead of herself a little bit. They do eventually get discovered and Oscar Isaac shoots two of them <laughs> yeah. in front of everybody. Yeah. In a, in a scene that I think is like, one of the best scenes in the movie and just utterly terrifying yeah and really impactful absolutely absolutely i, I think that i mean again I, again that this stuff and the, and the brothel was far and away the best stuff in the film it's a shame that uh, there's so much silly faffing about and this next kind of level this 
stuff. So we have another one of these pretty much straight away because uh, Sweet Pea is going to be stealing or making a copy of a map, which she does while we are incepted into a World War... And just in sentences I didn't expect to say today in news. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we are incepted into a World War One sequence where they fight clockwork Nazis. Yep. Which well, not Nazis, because it's World War One. Yeah, oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just Germans. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just my mistake. My general mistake. clockwork Germans. <laughs> Anachronisms all over the shop here. Um, uh, no, I actually think as a visual, the clockwork soldiers are really cool. Yeah. No, yeah. they are. They're very cool. Uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see a movie like that where you actually care. About <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, God, this would be really cool if I gave a shit. Yeah. Well, if I gave a shit. And again, if, if, there, if it ever felt like they were in any real peril. Yes, exactly. Which yeah. they never do. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Also, massive body, I, massive body count in this film, but uh, still in the UK managed to get released as a twelve. Really, it's amazing. It's R rated in in America. Oh, really? Yeah. The yeah. Um, although, in honest, in in all honesty, that probably has more to do with the sexual stuff than it does with the violence, because Americans are fucking weird that way. I mean, I, I would still say there's some pretty rough stuff in here for it's, a for a twelve. Yeah, I think even the theatrical cut. I think that um, the notion that um, in 2011, a twelve-year-old could wander in and watch this. Yeah, no, I wouldn't show it. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, pretty out there. Um, but yeah, so um, the map is successfully stolen while in the kind of uh, in the fantasy plane. I believe that Baby Doll shoots down a zeppelin with a handgun. Um, she does. She Hindenburgs a zeppelin. Yeah, th- th- this this feels its length for me, but I don't want to. I don't want to stick around on that too long um, because we do head straight back to reality at this point. And um, well, not reality. It's well, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Like, like, I, I keep fucking saying reality to the point that I abbreviated going back to this level of fantasy as BTR in my notes for back to reality, yeah. and that's wrong every single time I write it. <laughs> BTB back to the brothel. <laughs> yeah, I, um, yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, back at the ro- meanwhile back at the brothel. Of course. Yeah, uh, sure. um, uh, Gronsky and uh, Blue. Well, I was going to say that they hatch a plan between them. They don't really. Blue comes up with this idea for Baby Doll to dance for um, the, the mayor. mayor. And yeah, I kind of ha- I have it written down that they hatch it between them, but actually it's kind of, uh, it's very much in kind of defiance of what Gronsky wants. Yeah. And uh, you, you kind of see um, this kind of not so subtle hint at a kind of uh, coercive relationship between those two as well. Well, yeah, she, uh, she's a fascinating character in that regard because again, she's she's the ultimate sort of den mother where it's like, you know, she, I don't, I don't know if i want to get political here <laughs> do it but, fight away man yeah, fight so away here in, here in america we have a president who many people believe is not particularly sane or competent <laughs> to do the job to which he has been elected and uh one of the rationales that a lot of people around him who have more experience and have more uh clout than him people like you know uh john kelly or um rex tillerson who was his secretary of state mm-hmm. people who should know better than to work for an idiot Uh, the way the thing that they tell themselves is well at least we're here minding the idiot and trying to protect everybody from the idiot Uh, and I think that's similar to the way that Grosky functions in this level of the story where it's like Oscar Isaac is evil and she sees it as her job to protect the girls from the evil as much as possible obviously protecting them from evil would be ultimately would mean getting them out of the evil but she doesn't have the power to do that so instead she sort of sees she has this weird sort of complicity but at the same time you know antagonism towards blue yeah and what he's doing to the girls mm-hmm. and again yeah. i think that again to me that's a very gender specific commentary in a way my trump analogy notwithstanding <laughs> <laughs> because, because it's you know again it, it's about women getting put in this position where they have to choose between their own safety and their freedom and she has chosen the side of safety relative safety obviously 
Yeah, it's so um, the, once you flag this up as a kind of as um, a theme, it's everywhere you look in here, isn't it? Oh, well, absolutely. Yeah. Meantime, it is Amber's turn next to steal a lighter from the mayor during this visit, um, which happens while we are incepted into a scene where they jump out of an airplane to slay a dragon. Um, again, I've got like <laughs> like I've got no objection to this on a visual level, um, and eventually it's, uh, they succeed. Um, again, I think we're on old ground here. The stakes are kind of low. It happens. They yeah. succeed. Yeah, this is a... well. There's the, the the only thing I'll say about this one is that there is a little bit of again thematic stuff happening in here with. Because, the, you know, they have to go kill this baby. And the last thing that he says to him... So there's this running gag with Scott Glenn's character where he gives him a piece of advice. Like, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Mm-hmm. And then he goes, oh, and one last thing. And gives them a last instruction or whatever. And in this case, it's don't wake mother. And it turns out they do, in fact, wake the mother dragon. And then have to end up fighting with the mother dragon. And it's not a particularly trenchant commentary. But that clearly is of a piece of the theme of femininity and what we will fight for. What women will fight for, yeah. in particular. Yeah. Wow. God, so, yeah, I don't think St- that's you have you have you have come <laughs> well armed, my friend. Yeah, Mitch, <laughs> Mitch is flabbergasted. <laughs> <laughs> we just we, we actually just keep exchanging like looks of mild shock every time you say something like that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, eventually, the, yeah, the dragon is subdued, the lighter is obtained. Oscar Isaac gets room to be a bit of a villain here. Just here, hi. Uh, but pretty, I think it's been a while at this point, I think, that um, because in the previous scene, Oscar Isaac's blue, um, uh, exercising what I think is a remarkable um, eagle eye, notices that the map has been taken off the wall, copied and put back on the wall. Yep. <laughs> um, incre- yeah. in- incredible eye for detail. But yeah, at this point, he kind of, uh, he, you see him kind of doing some of the kind of intimidation and stuff, and you kind of just get to see him act a little bit. And it's like I said, it's been a little yeah. while at this point since you've seen a scene that kind of uh, grounds you in the drama of the thing. And I think it's a reminder of how good he is, but also, yeah, like how much more compelling the stuff kind of on the ground in this film is. Yeah. And again, he's scary because you, you get the sense of menace off of him. It's hard to, it's hard to sort of imagine that that's also Poe Dameron, who's this sort of happy-go-lucky flyboy pilot guy yeah uh because again this was my first introduction to him as this villain and this very intimidating and scary villain that you know to me he he uh the character and his performance both sort of keep walking up to the edge of being cliche but something always seems to sort of save it like it it never to me it never gets to the i mean he's clearly a snarling you know almost literally mustache twirling villain (laughs) (laughs) but at the same time he still feels like a a character in both this level and then later on in the asylum level when we go back and, and you get a sense of his you get a sense and, and i think this is all oscar isaac you get a sense of his the vulnerability that's underneath all of this anger and need to control you actually get a little bit of that um when baby doll comes out of this dance for the mayor because the first time you see oscar isaac's character when they come when she finishes that dance he's crying yeah so you get to see a little bit of that kind of sensitivity and vulnerability which the first when i watched it the first time today uh before we watched it again uh, <laughs> i uh I, th- I found it a bit jarring i thought it kind of stood at kind of odds with the character but then seeing it again today i thought well seeing it again tonight I thought, yeah, that kind of makes more sense given exactly what you said, what you what you see of him later on. Yeah, no, and especially with how they wrap up his character in the the actual reality level as well. Sweet Pea at this point, she did say if she thought that there was a point where this was getting too risky or if it was getting too much, she would say so. At this point, she does. They're pretty heavily, roundly threatened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and it's all too much for Blondie, who hits the panic button, and off-camera, we assume, leaks uh, the plan, or at least some of the particulars of it, to both Gorski and Blue. Right. Um, Which, that's an interesting point. I don't know that the movie ever answers the question as to whether she tells it to Gorski, and then Gorski tells it to Blue, or if she goes directly to Blue with it. Yeah, I think she must have gone to Blue, because Gorski tries to defend the girls later on in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, I feel like she would have been a, still been a bit more um, defensive of them. Isn't it the case, though, that um, when Blondie, when Gors- Gorski's trying to be like, oh, tell me what's wrong, uh, when she says, can you can you keep a secret, you see Gorski kind of getting ready to listen, but then you also see, um, you don't see the head of the character, but you just see kind of like a leg and a torso of someone in the suit standing, like walking and standing behind her. Huh. Uh, I think I caught that. So yeah, I, my assumption is that she told it to them both at the same time. Oh, Interesting. Okay. But yeah, so that's kind of, that's kind of seeded. But um, before that happens, uh, it's time to get the knife off of the cook, who is one of the most reprehensible characters in here by the way and and one of the most physically disgusting characters yeah. as well yeah they go to real legs to make him look as kind of sticky and wet and slimy as humanly possible yeah mm-hmm. skin skin condition yeah. and just yeah yeah uh, yeah it's like a, a big overgrown pig with a with psoriasis <laughs> you know that way have you ever watched like a cooking show and like one of the chefs on it's really going for it he's like whisking or something and there's like sweat dripping off his nose and you're like, ah, oh, that's going into the food. Like, like obviously, <laughs> just as well, they've got someone in the background that makes the next stage of the dish so it's ready to go. Um, but yeah, I was looking at him going, ah, oh, he's sweating in all their food. <laughs> that's what's eventually going to bring the place down, is that the kitchen hygiene not being up to code. Health code violations. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so yeah, I think that it is actually worth talking a little bit about the um, the kind of side quest that happens here with the bomb on the train because it's the first one where um, one that they hit any real discernible peril in the kind of fantasy sequence. But when we cut back to the, it also cuts back to the brothel, which they don't do very often during these sequences. Yeah, it and you cuts kind off of, mid. It's the only time I mid think sequence. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's kind of nice to see some of the like when a plan doesn't work the way it's supposed to. In, on that plane that you kind of come back and see a mirroring kind of mishap or a hitting a snag here. I kind of, I yeah. think that I, even though, I mean, we've established that these sequences don't really mean anything, I think that I would have invested in them a little more if you'd seen a little more of that and a little bit more of hopping back and forth between the two. Yeah, I think... Yeah, that- and a little more of uh, an understanding of how what was happening in the sequences related to what was happening in the brothel level. Yeah. Which is, the, again, the only place. So, yeah, so they, they run into some problems with this bomb, and it turns out it's because in the brothel level, the uh, the the cable that goes to the radio that's playing the music that she's dancing to is frayed and apparently getting wet, and it makes the radio stop playing, mm-hmm. which brings the cook out of the... Snaps him uh, out of his reverie. Yeah, yeah, exactly, out of his hypnotic state. Which I guess, so I guess she can't just dance to no music or hum. Nope. <laughs> she can't just uh, hum a tune and dance and it doesn't work. The magic doesn't work. How, how, great, how great would it be if like when you, when the sequence is about to start, you see her swaying and just going. Or if, or if they all, all, all the other girls just bust out a song around her to keep it going. Like. Yeah. Singing this Beatles song. <laughs> um, yeah, in the kind of fantasy plane, uh, Rocket Jenna Malone sacrifices herself, and when we rejoin them in the brothel, I almost said reality again. She's been stabbed. She has with the knife, the, the knife in question. Yeah, um, yeah, a pretty marked gear shift in the kind of dramatic tension here, and I think that that's probably largely in part by the fact that I think that we are snapping into this plane for the last time at I this bl- point. Yeah, that's the last fantasy sequence. Yeah. yeah, I think the film improves quite significantly around here, and it's for that reason. I think 
that just all the stuff that it's kind of seeded and it isn't really given room to breathe for the rest of the film kind of finally gets that and I think it benefits from it massively. Yeah, and now now the stakes are clear and and here I think this is one of the things that's good about the structure of this movie that it gets right is because we have not jumped back up to that asylum level pretty much at all, we're fully invested in what's going on on this level and we're no longer thinking of it as, oh, okay, well, this is just a fantasy sequence of this real thing that's happening, right? Which is something that we're explicitly aware of when we're watching all of these, the kick-ass fantasy sequences, mm-hmm. right? We're aware, okay, this is this is doubly sort of not real. Mm-hmm. But when we jump back into the brothel, I mean, you even have it in your notes as like, oh, we're back in reality, which is not actually even reality. <laughs> but it, but the movie succeeds in grounding us enough in that world that we, it feels like reality yeah. for the characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, because that's where the movie, the movie spends 90% of its time anyway. Yeah. Or 90% of its emotional energy, for sure. I agree. I think it's like the, the Wizard of Oz in that regard. Where, uh, yeah, where like, oh, the whole thing's a dream, but while you're in the dream, the stakes matter. Yeah, and you were there, and you were there, and you were there. <laughs> um, so we were talking about a kind of um, a really high-octane Oscar Isaac scene earlier, and it's here. He's an absolute menace here. Yeah, yeah, and, and again, Sweet Pea turns out to be 100% correct. As soon as he realizes what's going on, he murders these two girls in front of everybody. Yeah, he comes in and uh, pretty aggressively uncovers their plan in front of them, flips over the, the weird blackboard or chalkboard uh, that they keep scoring things off before they've got them. <laughs> yeah. I fucking hate that. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's so annoying. It is. And it, actually, he makes mention of it. He says something like... Well, so, but he turns out to be wrong, right? Because a couple of minutes later, after everybody leaves, he decides, you know what? I don't care how much money I'm getting from the high roller. I want baby doll. Oh, that's right. And yeah, I'm gonna take her. And they do that. She and does she have the does knife. actually have yeah, the knife. She, fuck, she yeah. they grabbed a different knife uh, at some point. The chef is missing his other knife. He always had two knives, and they, you know, one of them he uses to stab Rocket with, but. They managed to get the other knife, and she uses it to stab Oscar Isaac. So technically, she, you know, as dumb of an idea as it is to write your plan down on the chalkboard, which is uh, she, she did have a right to cross that one off because she did actually have it in her possession. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, Amber and Blondie both abruptly offed here. Yep. I, I, no I, great I, loss. Uh, no. No, um, uh, the, the interchangeables executed. <laughs> Does this wash his scheme to kind of make money in this on this plane hinges on this dance going well um, and he's kind of mentally terrorized baby doll by killing her friends in front of her? <laughs> I, yes and no. I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, ultimately we end up in a place and, and we're going to talk about this scene in a second when we when the high roller finally arrives. Uh, and he and Baby Doll encounter one another for the first time. That, to me, is the important part of that transaction. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Obviously, at this point, I mean, I think, I, I think, you know, at this point, his anger is so great that he doesn't give a crap about that stuff anymore. Again, as evidenced by the yeah. fact that he clears everybody out of the room and then he tries to rape Baby Doll. Because even though he sold her virginity for an exorbitant sum of money, he's about to take it for himself because he doesn't care anymore about the money. He's yeah. going to throw it all away because... It's more important to him to dominate these women and to make sure that they're in their place than it is for him to make money off of them. Which which kind of comes clattering into view in the kind of where we see him in actual reality when this unfolds. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so eventually, yeah, Baby, baby Doll almost managed to kill him here. Well, she, she, sta- we don't know. she stabs him. She stabs him. Ah, yeah, uh, yeah, sorry. She stabs mistake, him yeah. in the neck. Yeah, she doesn't finish him, him off. Subdues yeah. him. <laughs> it's enough that it's an inconvenience. Which, in a sense, I, I remember thinking as I was watching this yesterday, like, because in my brain, like, I, I kind of had a memory of her actually killing him, but she doesn't actually kill him. She walks away, and I'm thinking, that's kind of a really bad idea. Yep. 
when you think about it at the brothel level, it's an enormously bad idea. Like, finish the dude off. Yep. Like, <laughs> you don't take any chances. Double tap. Double tap. Yeah, yeah that's uh, exactly what I was going to say. Next, but when, when you then go back up in, you know, in, in a couple minutes, when you go back up into the asylum level, she has done the same thing to him. You see that he has a yeah. you know a bandage on his shoulder, and on that level, it makes much more sense that she would be reluctant to just out and out kill somebody. Yeah, right. In in reality, than she would be on this brothel level. And so, to me, that that's a thing that doesn't quite make sense in the moment, but I think once you realize sort of what's actually happening, mm. mm-hmm. it then makes sense again. Yeah, she now uh, goes and has an interaction with the the high roller and a scene that was uh, cut. From the well, so first she she helps she helps uh, Sweet Pea escape. Yeah, oh, all the course, escape's gonna happen yes. first. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and uh, yeah, and at this point you kind of uh, Stephen, you mentioned it earlier. At this point, when they're coming to escape, they realize basically that the fifth item is ba- basically a human sacrifice yeah. in the form of her. Yeah, so right. she she creates kind of one last diversion. Sweet Pea escapes, and you're right. This kind of it kind of reframes the whole story as being Sweet Pea's story. Which arguably it's been framed that way all along because she gave right. the opening narrative, nah, the opening narration, right? And and then also we start with her in the, I mean, the, the the entire brothel sequence begins with this reenactment on stage of a lobotomy happening in which Sweet Pea is dressed like baby doll, yeah. and wearing a baby doll wig. Uh, and so I think uh-huh. every time I watch this, I kind of go back and forth on this idea that maybe they're the same person. In a sort of Tyler Durden Fight Club kind of way, okay. like, that, like Baby Doll is sort of an aspect of her personality that she has to leave behind in order to get away from this place. I don't know that that fully tracks on a logical level, but it's a thing that I remember being struck by the first couple times I watched it. I'll be honest, and, I'm in, uh, I'm installing that as the truth. I'm I like inst- that. I'm installing that as the truth without fact checking. <laughs> 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 I, I I thought it was until I watched it this most recent time, and I was with that in mind, and I was like, oh, I don't know that that fully makes it all the way through. It's, but, a, it's a really interesting interpretation, I mean, she does, right? Because she has the, the the younger sister that's killed that she accidentally kills, right? Mm, yeah, the, you know, baby doll does, and also Sweet Pea does. I don't know. I I, I I I wonder. What I will say is that when we do go back to reality, and we learn of of baby doll's misdemeanors. One of the things that they do say, they say that she set a fire and she stabbed an orderly, but they also say that she helped an inmate escape. So right, that, which is, that's that's the reason why I was like, okay, that kind of shoots down yeah, that theory. That's the bit. only thing from, for me that is stopping me from actually declaring that fact. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that, that was what I noticed this time too. And I was like, oh man, that kind of kills that theory. Yeah. But um, but yeah, Sweet Pea escapes and uh, Baby Doll wakes up in the presence of the High Roller. And yes, something that I think is cut from the theatrical ensues. Oh, see, this is this is this is the reason why I well, said you guys need to watch this version. Of the I movie. did kind of <laughs> wonder, me, but go on, yeah. This scene is the linchpin of the entire thing, and it boggles my mind that they cut it from the movie because to me, like this comes as close as possible to stating the theme of the movie in a way that it's very sort of explicit. And I remember the first time I, I watched this extended version, I was just like, how did they, how did they cut this? Like, cause to me, like he basically says, I don't, I'm not interested in, in raping you. Yeah. I'm not interested in having sex with you. If you're not into it, I want you to want to, even though I paid an exorbitant amount of money to do it because I'm interested in the one thing that money can't buy, which is some sort of reality, some sort of real moment, a real moment of connection with another person that all my money in the world is not capable of providing to me unless that person is willing to give it of themselves, right? Right, yeah. And to me, again, like from a thematic point of view, when you look at the totality of the entire movie, 
and what it's trying to say about men and women and the boxes that men put women into. Again, that to me is the linchpin of the whole thing, where it's like people like Oscar Isaac don't just want to dominate women. They want them to be objects. They want them to perform, to be sexy, to be kick-ass when they need to be, uh, you know, in, uh, whereas John Hamm's character, who is sort of held out as this terrifying prospect the whole time. First of all, he shows up and he's John Hamm, right? He's not <laughs> yeah, a cook, He's right? not the cook, it's exactly. Not, yeah. <laughs> he's John Hamm. And it's like, okay, dude, look, I would have sex with John Hamm <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if it came to it, okay? So, like, the fact that he's John Hamm, I don't think, again, I don't think is an accident at it's all. Not gonna, it's, Isaac, it's not going to He's a good-looking guy, but he's kind of scummy, you know? But John Hamm is just, like, I think he's the platonic ideal of, like, handsome if you like, you know, if you look up handsome in the dictionary, like that, like just this manly man sort of like, he, you know, he's got a five o'clock shadow three minutes after he shaves <laughs> and uh, just, you know, I don't know. To me, he's just such a man's man. And, and he obviously he's he's cast into those roles, uh, particularly, you know, in Mad Men. So, again, I, I, he what he wants from her is something that she can only give willingly and not something that she that he can take from her. Mm-hmm. And that, that to me, I, I think speaks to what the movie is about. To me, it, it adds a depth to it that is not there. I, th- I feel like if he had left this scene in the movie, a lot more people would have gotten it. And I don't know that it necessarily would have done a whole lot better at the box office, but at least it would have been like people would have, you know, there, there more people would have gotten, would have understood what the movie was saying. Yeah. Yeah, I, I read somewhere, I think, that the MPAA, or the MPAA, sorry, had requested that it was um, it was trimmed. And based on that recommendation, Zack Snyder says, well, do you know what, I'll just take it out. And I think that was a decision that I, I'd read that Zack Snyder was constantly annoyed by, and so was Emily Browning. Um, and I think, you might be right, I think might have led to some of the, the damage done to the film. Yeah, again, I just, to me, like, it's just a completely different movie without this. It's like pulling out the uh, Michael Corleone taking revenge on people during his during his uh, son's baptism mm-hmm. at the end of The Godfather like yep. and just skipping right to the kissing the rings thing and you're like wait what? <laughs> <laughs> at this point Baby Doll is lobotomized yeah yes um, this... and there's this weird yeah interesting moment where John Hamm in the reality level in the asylum level who is the guy who's there who's doing the lobotomy has this moment where he—he he obviously this weirdness. He obviously yeah. sees something in her that she's seen from whatever, wherever she is at this point in time. He's seen something coming out of her having this, and I guess exchange with the high roller. And it, yeah, it I mean, freaks he, him he, out. She is, yeah, and he he has this moment of like, huh, maybe this we shouldn't be doing this kind of thing. Yeah, and again, I think there's because of the when it's set, which I believe is in the '60s, supposedly. Although it feels like it could just as easily be the 40s or 50s. Yeah. Any time really before the sort of sexual revolution and the second wave of feminism, there's this idea that like women having feelings or being, quote, difficult is a thing that you need to sort of tame or that you need to, uh, you know, put put the, the kibosh on. Yeah. And this obviously is an extreme example of that and, and done for, you know, even more nefarious reasons by the stepfather. But it's that, it's that again, thematically, I think it's that, that idea of like, okay, well, you, you know, you can't let uppity women get away with shit. You got to put <laughs> them in their place. Yeah. They do this really uh, interesting, right before he kind of, I guess, hammers that, whatever that tool is, the, the lobotomizer, um, before he kind of hammers <laughs> it. I mean, it's an ice pick. It's literally yeah, like it's almost, like, exactly, yeah, it's it's like, almost what it is. And uh, that's, a tr- that's a real thing, by the way. Oh, that's, yeah. That's how they were done. Yeah, that's how they did it's it. It's terrifying to and just And through the eye. Yep. Um, but, through the eye, and they just scramble your brain. <laughs> <laughs> 
But they do this thing where it kind of... You see all these flashes of, like, the sister being killed and the gas spraying out of the, like, where the bullet went in and they show you all yeah. these little snippets of things. I think that would have been a really cool point to just see snippets of the, the moments that maybe went wrong and how they reflected in the, the real world. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that... Because those are all things that are... I mean, that's what, how she ended up there, right? And there's a sense in which... I, one of the things that I have wondered about about this movie, and, and more, even more so this time through, is why she acquiesces. Because that's the thing that he sees, right? He sees in her eyes right before he does it that like she's like, just go ahead and do it. Yeah. And I think, I think, and I'm thinking a little bit out loud here, haven't necessarily thought this through, but <laughs> what what you said to what you just said made me think that maybe that was the point of those little flashes is her sort of like the guilt that she feels over having killed her sister mm. is 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 part of why she feels that she should be punished in this way, or that she just doesn't want that she doesn't not even so much punished as much as it is she's gonna get a lobotomy, she's not gonna have to deal with that pain anymore. Yeah, she's kind of have to deal with the pain of being in this world where the men around her are all pieces of shit. Uh, having killed her sister, having, having to fight the stepfather, like she can just sort of float off. Yeah, we kind of free from all of it. Yeah. Well, it does. She saved Sweet Pea, which was her mission, and 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 now she can, for lack of a better word, now she can relax. By <laughs> <laughs> but when um again when Oscar Isaac's dragged away here, one of the police officers that comes in and and, and deals with that addresses her and foolishly kind of asks her, "Are you okay? Are you all right? Hello, hello, is everything okay?" And then you see her, I suppose, as you would do on the brothel level. She looks absolutely fine. She's immaculate. She's got that real high kind of blusher in her cheeks. So I think that's supposed to show that she's back in that level where uh, things are maybe yeah, she's... more chill for her now than they were. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could you could you could argue that she had this moment with John Hamm as the high roller. Maybe maybe if she's real enough with him, he'll take her off and. She'll be married to a handsome rich guy in her imagination. There's again, there's I don't think there's anything to support that. <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> but uh, you can uh, you can make an argument for it at yeah, least. You can extrapolate that way. Yeah, some I need a reminder of how much of this is in the theatrical cut because this one goes into incredibly dark territory at this point as yeah. regards Oscar Isaac's character Blue. Pretty sure all of this is in the theatrical cut. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I think it is. Uh, so when it's established that because um, kind of John Hamm is um, as the lobotomizer. Um, has this has this conversation with uh, Grosky, 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 um, and kind of being like, "Oh, why did you authorize this procedure?" And at this point, you find out that um, Blue has been forging her signature in this instance and presumably in many Previous others. Yeah. He mentions that yeah. earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, the kind of the reason for that and yeah, why he's doing that is kind of shown to you in this incredibly grimy and extremely uncomfortable way. Yeah. And, and you see finally those guys who all, who, you know, the, all the other orderlies or whoever they are, who also play sort of his thugs who don't get very many lines in the brothel level. You know, they're, they're his fellow employees. And he clearly is also, again, he's one of those people that like is so good at lording his, you know, manipulating people essentially that these people have kind of stood by knowing that he's doing this kind of stuff to these girls, even though they're reluctant to allow it to continue. They like, they literally like, you can't do this. I'm done. And he's like, basically shut the fuck up. <laughs> yep. I'm yeah. not done. Go tire to the chair. And they do. Mm-hmm. They acquiesce to his, his will in that regard and then he yeah he proceeds to sort of repeat what he had done in the brothel level and you again that's the really the moment where you sort of see this powerlessness that's at the root of all of this desire that he has for power mm-hmm. right because you see how he's almost heartbroken in a way that he's turned her into a vegetable that that her fighting back is part of what he gets off on 
Mm, and yeah. now that she's lobotomized, he's really upset by it. Like he seems genuinely like that, like upset. Yeah, you that, know? that seems to and make not him angry, upset. I mean, like genuinely, like emotionally, like. Well, I I got an anger from him that, and when in that last scene where he's like screaming at her and he's like choking her, it, it's almost kind of further to what you just said, like that he's sad and angry at the fact that she yeah, is well, now. I think, yeah, she has no fight left. She is because we learn that for that she's been there for a week at this point. Although to us, it's just been like a day or whatever, yeah. or a matter of hours. But she's been there a week, and in that week, she has burned down a room, and she has helped an inmate escape, and she did stab and him. And stabbed him. Yeah, yeah. so <clears throat> she's none of that. She is literally a vegetable. And there's a yeah. bit earlier where they talk about, when when uh, actually when Sweet Peas dressed up as Baby Doll earlier, she's talking about uh, how you're supposed to get off in this kind of ideal of, or the point of this brothel is that you're supposed to be turned on, but... How can you be turned on by a vegetable? Exactly. And that's what happens in the end of the thing, right? Is that she... Yeah, but again, like, there's a moment There's a moment where he seems genuinely vulnerable and genuinely sort of mm. sad. Sad is not... Again, it's not really the right word, but, like, he's he's genuinely emotionally, like, triggered by this. And that, that then sort of triggers his anger to where then he wants to destroy her because now he can't even get the one thing out of her that he got from her, that he mm. wanted from her. Yeah. Again, it's all about domination. It's, he wants to dominate her, and now that he's turned her into a vegetable, he's sort of. It's on one one level the ultimate domination. Yeah. But on another level, it means that he can't. There's no satisfaction. She's not there to fight with him anymore. Yeah. yeah. I think at one point when he kind of when he kind of chokes her in the scene, he shouts something like "Come back." Yeah. Oh, yeah. He wants yeah. her to come back. He's yeah. like, "I want." Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, it's like uh, it's like a little kid who breaks his toy when he's at, he's angry and breaks the toy, and then sort of looks at it like, "Well, no, I can't play with this toy anymore." Yeah. You know, and I can totally see my toddler doing that. <laughs> <laughs> really upset. You know, like, well, now I can't play with this anymore. And you're like, well, maybe you should have thought of that before you broke the fucking toy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and yeah, at this point, I mean, the police barge in, and what is presumably a long chain of this kind of comes to an end. Yeah. Um, yeah. Elsewhere, um, Sweet Pea has escaped, gets on the bus with the aid of the wise man. Yeah. Yeah, so that's another weird sort of thing, and that was one of the things that uh, that made me think that Sweet Pea and Baby Doll were the same person. Okay, and go fact, on. That was probably one of the biggest things that made me think that, was because he's from Baby Doll's fantasies. Yeah. 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 And But then, I mean, it, on one level, obviously, it doesn't make any logical sense, right? Because... <laughs> He's just a bus driver. It's not like, you know, it's not like Wizard of Oz where she knew those people beforehand, right? And so it makes sense that she would have dreamed about them mm-hmm. because she there were people that were familiar with her, familiar to her before she went into the dream. In this case, it's somebody that she randomly runs into afterward. I think it's a neat little moment just from a you know, dramatic point of view. I like oh, yeah. the idea that he is there one last time to sort of protect her and be like, okay. Although, the interesting thing about his character, again, along this same sort of thematic line, there's a sense in which, like, he's kind of a dick, right? Because he... (laughs) He gives them a bunch of instructions. Like, even when they're supposedly these awesome kick-ass women, he has all the plans. He decides, you know, what, what they're going to do, tells them to go do it, and then it's like, all right, I'm out. I'm not, not going to put myself <laughs> in any danger here. You guys go and kick ass, and I'm going to go, like, chill and get a, grab a coffee. Let me know when you're done. Yeah, well, <laughs> He is the Bosley. Um. Exactly. He's very, yeah. Yep. It's like, well, bye. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> but yeah, after this kind of after this kind of final interaction between those two, we're out on Sucker Punch. We are, yeah. And how do you feel yeah. about that, Mitch? Stephen, I'm not gonna lie. I had really extremely negative memories of having seen this in the cinema, and I hadn't seen it since. And when you chose it, I was very interested to discuss it, but I wasn't necessarily happy about having to watch it again. Um, <laughs> so um, when you picked the when you picked it and specified the director's cut, I kind of figured there must be a reason why that was. 
Um, I still think that, like, as a piece of entertainment, this doesn't do it for me. But I think that in terms of mounting a credible defense against a film, uh, or sorry, like, in kind of in favor of a film, it's what you've done here with this is one of the most compelling ones we've ever had in the show. I would agree with that. Yeah. Well, I aimed, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that um, I think that you kind of um, it's. I didn't expect so many of the criticisms that I had of it in my head to be so kind of readily refutable. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that what I would say is I came away from this ready to never watch it again, and now I probably <laughs> will. Ah, there you go. Well, there you go. You bastard. There you go. <laughs> Andy. Yes. Your thoughts. Do you know? I've kind of said my thoughts I, I feel like i could have done without the majority of those uh, cgi heavy things that's the stuff that i struggle with the most and i guess Zack snyder's entire oeuvre i much prefer when things are a bit more grounded even though we are dealing with a kind of reality not yeah but then everything's relative kind of way yeah 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 but yeah do you know what i think it's an incredibly audacious film for a big studio to have picked up and thrown 80 million dollars at um i think it must have been a tough sell and it must have been a kind of it must have been a kind of tough break i think for Zack snyder for this his first film i guess kind of farted at his brain rather than something that exists on on paper or in a comic book yeah um, and do you know I, I think it's got a lot to commend it but I just wish it rained in the kind of that, that self-indulgent kind of urge that he seems to have a little bit mm-hmm. but would I watch it again? Probably. I I, I would say I, like, I'm not, I'm not going to go out and readily recommend this to people but I'm definitely not going to lambast it in a way that I might have previously. I think that like um yeah, pretty strong stuff, Stephen. I'm impressed. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why that's why I picked it. That's why I wanted to talk about it because again, I think it's one of the, I think it's a very misunderstood movie. I, and again, I could be wrong. I could be entirely wrong about this. It could be that it's just a fucking masturbatory fantasy by Zack Snyder, and uh, you know. But I feel like at the very least, I've, I've I've supported my my position with you know with with textual evidence from the, the film itself. Yeah. Uh, you know, starting with, like I guess I touched on this a little bit, but like that again, that title to me, the title is is another one of those things that's a key to this movie because it doesn't really make the title doesn't. There's nothing in the movie that that makes that title compelling in any way or yeah. makes it an obvious right to me the sucker punch is is that idea of like oh you know you think you're getting strong women by making them kick ass in these fantasy sequences, but that's not really what where real strength comes from, mm-hmm. uh, and that's not you know what. I think there's this. We 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 used to have a, an argument on on our screenwriting board a lot when you know back when I was first starting out screenwriting about what one person termed men with tits, oh. and the quintessential example was this movie called Salt with Angelina Jolie. Oh yeah, which was literally yeah. written mm-hmm. as a male character, and then they decided to cast Angelina Jolie, and they changed nothing about her character whatsoever. Uh, and there was this long ongoing argument of uh, which I found myself on both sides at various points mm-hmm. of like, can you do that right? Because we live in a society where people are raised in different ways and socialized in different ways and strength is portrayed in different ways depending on gender uh can you just go okay well i'm gonna just take this male character you know like the resident evils you know where it's like okay well i'm just gonna make her a kick-ass warrior woman and that's gonna be a substitute for a strong female character and the idea that that's the only version of strength that a lot of male creators are capable of imagining women want to see you know in a sense whereas i think strength for a lot of women is a very different kind of thing than that male very male-centric view of what constitutes a strong woman and i think this movie is a commentary on that 
But it could very well just be a complete fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> it could have just been a guy going, I really want to just make a whole film with a girl in a miniskirt and thigh high socks. I yeah. I read that you can play this film along with Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd, the Shut album. Up. And it, it like syncs up thematically. <laughs> Shut up. I, I'm just I telling you what I read. Being, I can't tell if you're being serious <laughs> or not. Honestly, that, I, 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 read mean, that, I read that and, uh, and it went into quite a lot of detail but uh yeah you can apparently you can play this alongside dark side of the moon and and have a smashing time as a companion the, piece uh the the theatrical cut or the i uh, think it must be the theatrical cut yeah uh I, I i don't have that information but that's maybe something to look into <laughs> well thanks a lot andy now i have to watch it again twice <laughs> <laughs> um Stephen, before we finish up um want to take um a little bit of time to talk about some stuff um of your own yeah um first off the podcast that you co-host with scott weinberg science versus fiction i think this is a really cool idea would you like to just talk about it a little bit well, so we take two movies every week and we sort of pit them against one another. We'll choose two movies that have similar, either similar thematically or similar, uh, you know, similar genres, similar science fiction mm-hmm. elements. And we will talk about both of them. So I am a an astrophysicist by training. Uh, I have I have a PhD in astronomy and astrophysics. Uh-huh. Uh, I do not practice anymore, but that's where my training is. So I know a lot of stuff, especially about space and about science in general. Right. And Scott is a film critic of you know 15 years or yeah. or more and so he comes from it sort of from a sort of film analysis perspective both of us obviously are filmmakers and, and screenwriters um and so you know it, it's examining these movies in a way that is we hope is enjoyable as opposed to pedantic and so you know like taking something like uh like we just released outbreak versus contagion <laughs> we had a guest on who happens to be my younger brother who is an actual doctor like a medical doctor wow. and uh <laughs> has a master's in public health and so he, you know, he, he's the kind of guy who literally goes to third world countries when ap- outbreaks happen to try to help contain them or to treat people. And um, so we did those two movies and we talk about whether the, we talk about where, you know, where the science is right and where it's wrong. Mm-hmm. But we also talk about whether or not that hurts the enjoyment or helps the enjoyment of the movie. Because <laughs> there are plenty of times where the science is just ridiculous. So uh, the, the quintessential example was we did an episode on 2012 versus The Wave, which are <laughs> the, <laughs> wow. the least realistic and the most realistic disaster movie ever made. Two of my favorite <laughs> movies could, could not be more different from one another, especially in terms of their scientific sure. veracity and scientific intelligence. <laughs> but I love both of them for very different reasons. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I almost picked 2012 for holy for this, shit for this podcast, but I we, because we had just covered it on our yeah. podcast, I decided not to. But by the way, I I love Outbreak. I've mentioned Outbreak quite a lot on this show. Yeah, I had never seen it before uh, two weeks ago or whatever when we watched it. Oh, cool, um, cool. Yeah, but that's the basic idea. Is that you know we talk about it, we try to sort of bill ourselves as kind of the anti Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll oftentimes suck the joy out of a movie, being like, "Oh, well, those stars weren't in the right place." It's like, dude, shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> cares. Like, there are things that matter. There are things where it's like, okay, well, this. There are things that I can't that I look at and go, okay, I can't. I have a hard time with this movie because I know more about this subject than the general audience sure. right, will yeah. necessarily. You know, if it's about black holes or space or that kind of stuff, we're like, okay, that's not real. That couldn't happen. Um, but again, sometimes that sometimes that completely pulls me out of a movie. And other times it's just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> sure. I'll, you know, yeah. I'll either move past it or I'll, you know. And so it's, it's fun to sort of talk about 
yeah. well, uh, you know, wh- how and why those things. There's a lot of talk about suspension of belief, disbelief in general. Yeah, and when when you can and can't kind of get on that train. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Also, just um, obviously it's been out there for a little while, but um, uh, found footage 3D is available everywhere on Shutter. Loved it. Uh, yeah, I think this film's great. I first saw it at Fright Fest in 2016. I was gonna say, who are you guys kidding? You're gonna have somebody on to talk about to try to redeem <laughs> my movie. Oh point. come on! Yeah. Um, uh, we might have a filmmaker coming on soon. Who we've covered one of their films in the past. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting. Um, no, we. Um, I remember kind of. It was. I remember it was on the last day of the festival, and we were all kind of we were heading in for it. And I think that a few people kind of were confused by the title and didn't know what was going on. And I think that it kind of. It subverted everybody's expectations in a really interesting way. It stands up on rewatch really nicely. But for anyone that hasn't seen it, do you want to just talk a little bit about what it's about? So it is about a group of filmmakers who go out into the woods to shoot the, what they bill as the first 3D found footage horror movie. <laughs> uh, and our view on their world is the behind the scenes camera, which is also being shot in 3D because reasons. <laughs> uh, because the 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 producer of the of the film has decided that this will make them famous and allow them to make the next Blair Witch Project. And uh, even though it makes no sense inside the world of the story, which was, you know, that was our hook. That was when we decided to sort of, okay, this actually is a thing we could do because now that he's doing it for these incredibly stupid reasons, we get to do it for a reason that actually is organic to the story that we're telling. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they go out to this cabin in the woods and we slowly learn that, in fact, this cabin may actually be haunted. And, you know, so it starts, it is, it's funny because one of the phrases that I used to describe this movie all the time was it's a sucker punch. (laughs) which by which i don't mean compared to this movie although i think there are uh ways in which you could but in the sense that it's kind of a comedy for you know 50 minutes and then a horror movie and uh you know it 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 aims to sort of lull people into this it's got it's just got a whole lot of very meta humor to it um you know my my biggest influences were blair witch project and scream Mm -hmm. and just sort of nobody had done that for found footage yet where you have characters who know all of the cliches of found footage movies and they can talk about them and com- comment on them but then still sort of fall prey to those same things yeah yeah i mean i, I like say I, I think the film's great and it's out there now and people yeah can... me too and I, I i watched it on shutter off the back of i think hearing you guys talk about it coming off the back of fight fest yeah yeah yeah, yeah. steven as recently as this morning i saw uh, your short film stop mm-hmm. uh, which i believe has just kind of reached the end of its festival run yeah that we just it just went up online on thursday yeah um last week which i don't know when this episode airs but you know within it's it's very recent yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep covering it, bases. It'll be within the last 10 days or so yeah i mean I, I i thought this was um i thought this was really remarkable i was uh it, when it kind of came out into the world um a film critic friend of mine posted on facebook basically saying that it was something that i needed to go or that we needed to go and check out and it was a kind of handy coincidence because it was just around the time that you said you were coming on the show um mm. so i just i just kind of i set aside 12 minutes to watch it this morning and i thought it was outstanding that's that's actually one of my favorite shorts i've seen in a while so um if you want to you. talk about that as well <laughs> like well, so yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a, in some sense a, a, a one eighty from found footage three D. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's a very it's uh, it is about two black men and a woman who get pulled over in a kind of in the middle of nowhere in a small town in the middle of America and uh, have an encounter with a police officer, a white police officer who doesn't have their best intentions uh, at heart. Uh, and it is I had always thought of it as a horror movie. So the backstory of this is Scott and I wrote a feature screenplay. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
of this. And I had, you know, had been four years out from directing Found Footage 3D and kind of was just itching to get back out and shoot something. And so we adapted uh, a bit of it into this short, to, uh, you know, as a thing that could stand on its own, but then also hopefully entice people to want to see more of the, the mm-hmm. story. But ultimately, for me, it's about my frustration. And I don't know how much this applies to your Scottish audience. I don't know how much of this stuff sort of makes it over the pond. Um, but here in America, you know, there's a lot of racism. <laughs> And there is a particular strain of racism and a particular strain of stuff that's going on where people of color are being shot and or arrested and or intimidated in various ways by people who are supposedly they're here yeah. to protect all of us. And, you know, video after video after video has come out of people of color oftentimes losing their lives at the hands of police officers who should know better yeah. uh, in best case, you know, in the most generous uh, sense uh, or are actively bad people. In, in the less generous uh, assessment. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's it was very much an attempt to provide an emotional touch point. So one of my favorite quotes of all time is Roger Ebert's movies are machines that generate empathy. And that to me is... You know, you can watch videos of this really happening. You can you can hear people argue about it. You can have conversations about, uh, you know, the statistics. But to me as a filmmaker, it was like, well, what's the one thing that I can do that other people can't necessarily? And that's tell a story that puts you in the in the position of these people so that you can empathize with the experience. And so that's yeah. that sort of, you know, was the genesis of it. Yeah, it, it, it does that so successfully. I think we'll post links up on our stuff so people can go and check it out as well. I've, I think it's really, really remarkable stuff. It's weird. The, the, the YouTube comments, which normally, I, you know, YouTube comments are a, a complete shit show. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you know, especially anything having to do with race, anything yeah. having to do with, uh, you know, any of that kind of stuff. To be fair, there are some comments in there that are racist. There's a whole bunch that are misogynistic. But there's also a really, there, you know, some really interesting conversations happening, which is, you know, again, ultimately the point of the movie was to yeah. try to contribute to the conversation in some way. And so I'm gratified that it appears to be landing how I hoped that it would. And the right people are hating it and the right people are liking it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, where can people keep up with you social media wise? Uh, I, well, eh. I mean, I'm on the Twitter. Yes. I don't use it very often. I f- think Twitter's kind of a cesspool. <laughs> <laughs> I am at Steven DeGenero on Twitter. Um, I mean, I check Twitter often. I don't engage. I don't like engaging in public conversations. Yeah. So most of my social media ing is done on Facebook which I can keep locked down a little bit better mm-hmm. but um, yeah I mean that's where you can find me you can follow the, sh- the film is you know, facebook.com slash stop the short film uh, or facebook.com slash found footage 3d follow any of those kinds of news awesome cool. Stephen this has been an absolute pleasure thanks for taking the time to do this yeah man I'm, thank you thank this you guys great. for having me yeah this has been absolutely great and eye opening for you Mitch I think I would say that's fair yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot of fun cheers so you can home, uh, give Dark Side of the Moon a spin <laughs> Andy, I don't know what to believe anymore. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. If you told me, one, that you were going to um, espouse that theory, and two... It's not, it's not my theory. <laughs> I'm not sat here. Um, yes, I've watched it twice today, but one of them wasn't accidentally while I was listening to Pink Floyd. <laughs> <laughs> if you'd said to me that um, that was going to be percolating in my brain, and also I was going to be entertaining the theory of, because of that and this discussion possibly watching two different cuts of Sucker Punch once more each I would not have believed you um, in fairness you could probably just try to find where I found that information and figure out which cut you had to watch that's very true yeah no I, I think that um, I've, I've got to say I've got to hand to Stephen I would say that in ter- obviously most of the time I am going into these things having not seen the film and I either like them or don't like them for the most part I don't dislike them on first watch
Watch as much as I disliked Sucker Punch in First Watch. Right. And I feel like he had more to do than most and did it better, I think. I, that was a, in terms of actually just selling me and kind of trying to get me to reverse course on the things that I thought the film did wrong, I thought that was very, very strong indeed. Yes, I, uh, I was blown away by that. Yep, um, very, very impressive. And a big thank you to Stephen DeGenero for joining us and talking Sucker Punch. And also, go check out his short film Stop, go check out Found Footage 3D, and go check out Science vs. Fiction. Yeah, and we will have links to all of them in the show notes. Yes, we're going to be doing all those things. And with that, I guess we're done for another one. Yeah, wow. However, we will be back, of course, on Monday. We yes. will be telling you everything that you need to know for next week's episode. Can't say too much about it just yet, but it's shaping up kind of nicely. Yeah. Um, we'll also be playing Mitch's Pitches, of course. The pitches are coming in thick and fast once again, and you guys are not letting us down. <laughs> uh, and, of course, we'll be taking a look at what we've been watching and uh, charting my progress to the Shockwaves 100, which Reminds me, I need to watch one of those. Um, yeah, all that and more, of course. Comes this is when it's all going to fall apart with the Shotways 100 mission for you, innit? You'll just start like missing a week, missing another week. Yep, just going to be collapsing at the final hurdle. Just these last eight or whatever. It is, it's <laughs> fucking take forever. I would really love to hear what everyone has to think about. Obviously, everything that goes on <laughs> on the show, but particularly, I'd like to hear um, what people think about Sucker Punch, what they thought about going in, what they thought about after this conversation. Particularly, maybe a female listeners, I would say. Yeah, um, yeah. I would be very interested to hear from all of you and if you want to get in touch with us you can do that facebook and instagram are strong language violent scenes you can tweet us as well at strong violent pc and you can also email strong language violent scenes at gmail.com you can also jump onto our website strongviolentpod.com where sure there is can. a contact form yes there is yeah yeah and there's also links to all of the social media places that you just mentioned and all the platforms where you can find us well not all of them but most of them yeah yeah the ones that we've bothered putting up there <laughs> and we- you can also find a link to t public where there are some t-shirt designs which are some of them are flying off yeah still still so thanks to people who are buying them yeah some of those are doing pretty well turns out making a logo tee not a bad idea <laughs> as it turns out yeah yeah, it only took us like six months after starting the tea public page to put a logo on it. <laughs> we will be back with another mini suit on Monday. Join us then if you can. In the meantime, don't forget, if you stand for nothing, you'll fall ah. for anything. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Language and Violent Scenes with Andy Stewart and Mitch Bain. Strong Language and Violent Scenes theme by Mitch Bain. Production and artwork by Andy Stewart. Find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts and Podbean.